0: Hey everyone! Welcome back to the Four Four Three Security Simplified. I'm your host Mark the Liberty, and joining me today is Corey
1: analysis' Not Grinder. All right, thank you.
0: <laughs> On today's episode—you'll figure
1: it out. Keep
0: listening; it might make sense. You'll uh, <laughs> you'll understand that reference relatively quickly as we discuss uh, some research from a couple of firms on the latest antics from our uh, North Korean friends after that we jump into another malware (laughs) analysis
1: uh, you gotta deliver that with more sarcasm (laughs) I'm sure the citizens of North Korea are our friends but come on North Korea
0: Uh, yeah there we go don't don't make yourself throw up on, on podcast and then we end Uh, with a potentially bright future for one specific critical infrastructure in the world of cybersecurity. You mean Um, we don't end uh, on a
1: downer telling everyone the world's ending and cyber is going to blow us all up and make the midnight clock turn to 1 a.m.? Wow, that's that's so not us. Oh, do we? That's a bummer. (laughs) So even when we have a positive ending, we somehow screw it up. And with that... Let's go ahead and just start the episode. That almost literal bombshell. Yes. Oops, right. I, I can see
0: synthesis. So let's uh, start this week with some news from our favorite threat actor country, or at least about them. Uh, so this research actually comes independently from two different sources, uh, OnLab and Checkpoint, both. Independently from each other, uh, release their analyses. Analysi? analysis. Analysis? <laughs> analysis? What is the plural of analysis? This is an important tangent. I think it would be their analysis.
1: <laughs> I don't okay. think you like add analysis. It's think not analyses like cacti. One of those weird words that it's singular, might be its plural. I don't so know. So is it like but I don't know. data
0: there where the singular is analum? Analysum? <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, important tangent over, uh, they released their analysis of the rock rat malware variant. That's a remote access botnet developed by APT 37, also known as inky squid, also known as red eyes, also known as Reaper, also known as scarcraft, which is a threat actor based out of North Korea with likely ties to the North Korean government, as do most threat actors out of that country. Uh, so. They both noted Rockrat itself is not new. It's been around for quite a few years. In fact, it was first reported on in April 2017 by Cisco Talus. Um, they typically uh, target government sectors in South Korea, as well as journalists and activists and North Korean defectors. Uh, other fun facts, it initially used, a, uh, used Twitter as a command and control channel, which now they'd be paying. How much is it for API access to Twitter? It's pretty dang pricey. Uh, from what I read from some developers that use it regularly. Uh, What else? Let's see. So modern variants, though, they use cloud storage as the command and control channel, basically uploading files and then reading files off of Dropbox and OneDrive and a few uh, East Asian hosting providers as well, too. Uh, Finally, it originally targeted Windows, but these days they have a macOS variant, which is strange. Although, as we discovered last week, two weeks ago, Macs do get malware. That's a surprise, uh, as well as an Android variant as well, too. Uh, so uh, they they checkpoint in their article noted that the previous infections uh, typically involved a malicious uh, Hangul word processing document. It's a popular file format in South Korea, or Hangul is their written language, uh, with a Exploit or a malicious. By the way, it's, it
1: might software. be worth, like I had no clue what angle was. So for those nerds out there looking for the file extension to go with it, I think it's HWP, right? Yep,
0: exactly. Angle word processing. That makes sense. HWP. There we go. Huh. Uh But so as you may remember back in July of last year, 2022, Microsoft started blocking macros and office documents by default. Uh, If an Office document has the mark of the web, meaning it was downloaded directly from the internet or attached to an email message, macros are pretty strictly disabled without some serious intervention by the administrator or uh, from the user themselves. Uh, It's no longer just that little, yes, I accept it button. It's you have to jump through some considerable hoops to allow macros to run in these uh, unsafe Office documents. So because of that, the same month, RockRat pivoted to a new infection chain uh, involving an oldie, as Corey would point out, but a goodie, of .lnk files. Uh, So the report mentioned April 2022. Just just a Uh, reminder,
1: I'm sure every listener knows lnk files are shortcuts. If you've ever made a shortcut in Windows at default, you know, it creates a link file.
0: uh, Oh, it turns out.
1: basically a symlink, right? Although you can do a lot more with them than just that. Pretty easy to
0: abuse them these days. Uh, so checkpoint pointed to another research article uh, by stairwell uh, back in april of last year uh, where they analyzed a, a backdoor trojan called gold backdoor also likely based out of north korea targeting south korean journalists and the infection chain for that one leveraged a quite large lnk file running powershell so like Corey, you just mentioned lnk files it's a shortcut should be a pretty small file format. It's literally just pointing to a location of another application or file. Yep. So a large one is abnormal. Um, so they found that it used a unique implementation of a publicly available tool called embed exe LNK. That's developed by a threat researcher who goes by the handle x86, Matthew. I wonder why they haven't upgraded to x64, Matthew, but I guess that's another question for another day um the program has a few evasion techniques so it sets the lnk file icon uh, to use the same icon as notepad.exe to make it look like it's a a document that would be opened in notepad.exe it sets the lnk description to uh, the string type colon text document uh, new line size colon 5.23 kilobytes and then a date basically so when you hover over it instead of saying it's a command It'll say, oh, it's actually a document that is this large. Uh, And then it encrypts, quote unquote, a embedded malware payload inside of it or executable using a Zor, and then uh, reversing it using a PowerShell, embedded PowerShell within there. Uh, So it seems like this method is what apt37 has been using lately to deliver RockRat. So they noted the earliest example, July 2022, quite a while ago now, they found a zip file uh, in Hangul, which when translated read uh, standing committee and standing special committee member list final.zip. And inside that zip file contains a .lnk file that drops a decoy Hangul word processor document uh, that's actually a legitimate file taken from the National Assembly's website And an interesting bit from here is, so they pointed out that the file included in this was actually made publicly available the exact same day that it was weaponized in this effectively fish that they were sending to a potential target. So they're staying up to date with relevant and recent files as the hook for some of this. Uh, January, 2023 was a more recent example. Zip archive called projects in Libya. Uh, that contains several stolen documents, three benign PDF files. And then a fourth was a 42.5 megabyte LNK file. That's a little to be bit a big
1: for LNK. I would think. Exactly. Five megabytes is big enough to be way too freaking big. They're usually like two kilobytes or something, but 40 yep. megabytes. My goodness.
0: So they basically go through these different examples of zip archives and ISO images uh, that contain the LNK file seemingly to avoid that mark of the web. Uh, basically if you download a zip file from an email attachment or online, the archive has the mark of the web, its contents does not. That is a limitation of that feature these days. Um, and then they point to the actual exploit chain, basically how the bulk of these work is zip file containing, containing an LNK file masquerading as something else. LNK file executes PowerShell, which extracts a document from within itself, drops it to disk and opens it. So this is like a decoy file to make it look like that LNK file pretending to be a PDF really is a PDF because it's got one embedded in it, drops, opens it. But in the background, it also extracts a batch script, a -A BAT script within Windows, uh, drops it to disk and executes it. That script then executes a new PowerShell uh uh file downloads a payload from OneDrive, the command and control server, decodes it, and then executes it. Uh the decoding being they masquerade it by using the first byte as the key of the file and then Zoring that with the rest of the payload. Um and then ultimately drops a shellcode loader, which then decodes the rock rat portion of the payload using a different key and executes it. So first off, like LNK files aren't new. Corey, how long have these been around? Probably longer than me. <laughs> as honestly. long
1: as Windows, really. But I mean, as an exploit technique, they were a very common email bass, uh, a email attachment back in the late '90s and early 2000s. So. They had fallen out of kind of style for the past decade, but they were very common file type. I mean, old school Firebox 2 users or even Firebox 10 users would know that we, our proxies block them, the SMTP proxy by default. So very, very old, but
0: But they've come back
1: big time. I mean, uh, we just recently did a couple presentations showing how our products, how some hacking works or malware works and how our products catch things that are not just malicious signatures and uh LNK has become a great way of living off the land technique since it essentially can run that PowerShell and do whatever. You know, what a great way to start additional bad stuff using living off the land tools. So they've made a comeback. If you go to abuse dot what is it? Uh, yeah malware I think it's called malware bizarre You know, when I was looking for samples to use for living off the land techniques, whether they be documents or whatever, I found a ton of, you know, besides this sophisticated North Korean threat actor, normal cyber criminals have picked up LNK files again, for sure.
0: And I think that... Like when you mentioned old LNK attacks, like they were probably pretty rudimentary, Different. where it was literally yeah. just like a script in an LNK file, and the LNK file executed that script. There was no probably evasion or obfuscation techniques within it. And these days, nope. like even the basic ones of just changing the icon to straight up embedding documents within it that open to make it look like it's actually a document like that's the new having relatively executable
1: embedded and obfuscating the type of the command like the powershell it's running even very common i mean this one used some interesting zoring to obfuscate the embedded exe but some have just taken like the commands they run and done basic base 64 to obfuscate what the command is going to be so yeah definitely up updated techniques of how they're using lnk files but not new and by the way stuxnet used lnk files in a whole different way which was actually a windows vulnerability that a lnk file could trigger so yeah be careful for shortcuts man and be careful for stupid double extension tricks i mean you know, you pointed out how you can force a LNK file to have whatever icon you want, uh, besides the the text, you know, notepad program being used. I've seen them use the PDF icon. Just do a simple PDF.lnk, you know, dot PDF.lnk naming of the file. And cause Windows by default won't show you the extensions, you'll see a dot PDF. <laughs> Uh, not realize you're not actually showing the extension and that's just part of the file name. So surely
0: yeah. no one would fall for that.
1: you th- man. Th- it's the trick as old as time the double extension stuff, man. You, there's so many products that warn about it now and yet they're still using it. So yeah, but surely no one would fall for it is obviously Mark, Mark sarcasm. I was so going to say Mark gasm,
0: but that does not off. sound very good. <laughs> Veto. Uh, <laughs> Moving on, so the Rockrat malware itself, so it primarily focuses, as you may guess based off the threat actors, on running additional payloads and extensive data exfiltration. So it relies on Dropbox, uh OneCloud, Yandex Cloud and OneDrive as these command and control and exfiltration channels because like businesses don't necessarily block access to OneDrive like on a network level. And if you've got normal activity going through that channel, you might not see this kind of exploitation. Even if you're like on. a threat researcher, if you see connections to OneDrive, you're not going to immediately assume they're unusual. Yep. Um, when it first runs on a machine, it collects information about it, like the directory it's running in, system architecture, sees if it's running in a VM, things like that. Uh, interestingly, it actually checks to see what process it is running under. Uh, Verify because typically it launches itself under. PowerShell or Notepad as a parent process. So seemingly if it were to run just executed on its own, that would be a sign it might be under analysis and stop its actual malicious activity. Um, It also attempts to kill two processes related to the HanCom Office uh, library because previous attacks from this threat actor abused exploits and files that would be picked up by that. uh, Like think Microsoft Office clone in, in South Korea and so it'll try and clean up its tracks from previous infections too. Uh, and then when it comes to exfiltrating data, it masquerades it as a MP3 file and uploads it to these uh, drives and encrypts the files on a file level using a hard-coded RSA key. So even if you man in the middle of the connection, you can't necessarily get the contents of the file without having that private key. So I think this is a good example of a an old style of attack with some of the new obfuscation and evasion techniques that we're seeing as hallmarks of just current malware that's out there um how do you defend against it well i guess don't live in south korea and you're probably safe from this particular threat actor um but like at the end of the day like this style of attack is exactly what edr is designed to catch like these suspicious activities, these shellcode loading, things like that are...
1: Eventually, they might get to downloading that something that has a signature, but there's perfectly being designed as a type of living off the land stager, right? I mean... There's not much for, you can create a, a new LNK file over and over with slightly different scripts. It's kind of silly to signature it because it always changes. So EDR, things that are built to look for, say, contextual rules for when PowerShell or commands are run. Uh, could help, right? I mean, if the LNK does start PowerShell, uh, something like EDR software will pay attention to everything about that PowerShell, to to what parameters it uses to start up, to see if it's using any sort of uh, evasion techniques, such as disabling Group Policy, disabling Microsoft Defender as it runs the PowerShell. It will look for obfuscation. <clears throat> you no, know, it expects the script to follow power the, the script to follow the PowerShell command to you know follow typical powershell syntax so if you instead get this blob of gunk you know it could be base64 it could be there's a little built-in code or variables that will start obfuscating what's really being written but uh, that's something else you can look for so really it comes when it comes down to it you know the kind of post uh, pre execution signature based malware detection is not going to be great at catching the LNK files themselves or some of the initial things that they start to do. But uh, I will say that eventually, if, if you know, the other thing these stagers try to do is disable your security. But if they're unable to, maybe one of the things it downloads later, a later stage, Uh payload could have gotten detected by preventative malware detection but i'd highly recommend edr just uh, to detect when these lnk files do tricksy things
0: and of course education right
1: i mean users should know lnk files are not things you should get typically in an email if you're getting a zip file with random weird files in it you know pay attention to that stuff why are you Shoot, why are you opening a zip file you don't even expect, let alone a LNK
0: file? And while like zip archiving, it protects it from the mark of the web. It doesn't protect it from most just email security solutions, including the, like the fireboxes, SMTP proxy, like you mentioned. And so I feel like LNK is probably a file type you can safely block without much collateral damage at at an email level, including within archives as well, too. So, definitely. I figure
1: like almost a hundred percent. Anytime someone is legit, why, why would email anyone legit? Yeah, why would it ever happen? And if one administrator wanted to send a shortcut, there's a mil- bazillion ways to do that without emailing a link file. It's absurd.
0: Yep, agreed. Uh, that isn't the last malware story of today, though. So, moving on. Uh, research. What? You're from... telling
1: me there's more than one
0: malware variant in the world right now, Mark? Really? Believe it or not, yes. <laughs> and we're going to talk about two of them today. Uh, so the second one comes from research from Elastic, uh, where they found a malware which they have called Lobshot uh, being delivered through Google Ads impersonating legitimate software. I have to imagine the name. They didn't, I don't think they mentioned it in the article why they came up with it. I'm thinking, you know, when you just lob something in the air, it's not very accurate. You don't really know who you're hitting. Maybe something where your primary delivery vehicle is through Google Ads, where it's not exactly targeted yeah. other than a demographic searching for stuff. It's an interesting name. At
1: um, least it's not as gag on your gag marketing name as some of the stuff people come up with. Like you say, it makes sense. Exactly.
0: Uh, so they labeled it as a type of HVNC or hidden virtual networking network computing malware. Basically, it allows a threat did, actor. Did, to... By the
1: way, has anyone else used like to correct me if I'm wrong? That just means it probably has the VNC server DLL, but it's not meant for the user on the computer to see.
0: Kind of, but no. Or is it something so more? A sl- <laughs> it's a little like bit a hidden. It's
1: a hidden VNC essentially. <laughs>
0: You'll see. Yes, I
1: just I've never seen anyone use that acronym, so I'm curious if they're making up their own buzzwords or if that's something the community's used
0: before. I've, so I've never noticed it. We will get into the way that the uh, the owner of this or the threat actor interacts with desktops, and it is it's both different than just you know VNC and very different from a traditional remote access trojan where it beacons home and gets a command. It's, it's kind of interesting and it feels very clunky, but anyways. Uh, so the campaign uh, chain basically starts where a user looks on the internet for legitimate software. Uh, there's a promoted Google ad that, of course, floats to the top of the page that contains a malicious link that's masquerading as the legitimate software. A uh, user clicks the link, navigates to the landing page of that legit or malicious website that looks like the real thing, downloads and executes a MSI installer, which then launches PowerShell and downloads and executes lobshot using uh, runDLL32. And ultimately it connects back to a hard-coded command and control IP address, which is a little unique in malware these days. It's not too difficult to create a domain name generation algorithm, but I guess a hard-coded IP is a little more cheaper than registering a bajillion domains. Um, so Elastic, they linked this campaign back to threat actor 505 which is the group associated with Drydex, Lockheed, and the Neckers ransomware. Uh Can't based we all out do of that five, or five Everyone
1: remembers that.
0: So I was hoping when I saw this, they would be like the miter threat actor number that we talked about recently of the cool standard. No, this is some other random it was like I don't we remember the name some random vulnerability or attack. Isn't there a new
1: Microsoft standard to you that results in names like glittery bunny or something (laughs) I'm I'm making crap up, but there is a new Microsoft naming convention that they've picked to that I think is related to state anyways. Good. That's what we need. Instead of the industry coming together for the one standard, all of the industry is just kind of standardizing their totally
0: different standards.
1: Yep. That's
0: how, yeah, I, I don't see a good solution for that. Well, there is a good solution. I don't see a solution anyone's ever going to adopt because the whole point of a name, as we discussed, is marketing. Anyways, we love our marketing friends. Um, so an example that they highlighted in their analysis was a malicious ad for AnyDesk, uh, the remote access or management software, where the domain was registered as Amy. I don't know about X- you. I use Amy Deck myself.
1: She's much better than AnyDesk. Exactly. Well, what was that Uh, domain you were talking about? That's the malicious version? uh, Anydesk is the malicious one, and AmyDeck is the legitimate one. Oh, good, good, good. (laughs) Then I'm fine.
0: I'm fine. (laughs) Wait a second. Weren't
1: you the one that sent me that link to (laughs) AmyDeck?
0: Exactly. (laughs) Uh, The landing page, as Corey discovered, is very convincing. It's a good impersonation (laughs) of Anydesk. And it includes a download now button, where when you download that, instead of getting Anydesk, you get lobshot. Um, when it comes to the the malware itself, so it uses uh, a few interesting things. It's got dynamic API resolution, so basically instead of having hard coded strings for the Microsoft APIs it wants to call to gain various levels of access, uh, it resolves them at runtime instead of them being caked into the uh, the application itself. Um, it's got Defender anti emulation uh, by checking to see if the computer name is Hall9th. And if the username matches John Doe, because apparently those are hard-coded values in the emulator layer for Microsoft Defender, you'd think they'd randomly generate them. I don't know. That feels like a really dang easy check for malware to do just hard-coded values like that. Um, Obfuscate strings within the application using different bitwise operators in there. uh, And it will enumerate. Data from the machine, things like the system name, GUID, username, desktop details, whatever. Ultimately moving itself to a different directory, spawning a new process using Explorer and terminating the old process. Um, so the reason uh, they I think they call it a hidden virtual network computing malware or HVNC is because in order to interact with the machine, instead of it beaconing home and getting a command, it actually so it creates a new hidden desktop, using the Windows API called Create Desktop W, so Create Desktop Window. It then assigns that desktop to the malware using the Set Thread Desktop API, and that allows the attacker to basically view the desktop, a separate one from whatever is being projected onto the user's monitor, allows them to interact with their own hardware interface, so keyboard and mouse, and it basically takes a screenshot regularly and shoots it back to the thread actor. So they get like this one frame a second it that regularly. That is how VNC essentially
1: were. I mean, they've gotten smarter over time where they only send mm-hmm. tinier screenshots of parts that have changed on the screen. But if you remember VNC from back in the day and what was it, BG256 mode when we didn't have fast internet connections, we'd have to drop it down to 256 colors. It's essentially just sending screenshots back with maybe over time a little bit of smarts of only... Sending sub screenshots of what has changed. So, ultimately, it sounds like they're just homebrewed, em- their you know, own em- emulating any sort of remote desktop using Windows
0: APIs. <laughs> uh, with this access, there's also some pre based like macros. I guess would be a good name for them. Basically, commands the threat actor can run to do things like open a browser, start a process, steal something from the clipboard, kill a process, whatever. And it also has a update mechanism as well too. Um, So, like, this is not the first instance, and obviously not the last instance, of threat actors abusing Google ads in order to promote their malicious software. Malvertising. And this kind of brand impersonation isn't unique as well, too. Like, we actually just took down two separate domains that were uh, pretended to be pandasecurity.com and trying to deliver Trojanized versions of our endpoint client. Um, This type of activity is just rampant out there because it tends to work. Like as a typical user, if I know I want this piece of software or a category of software, I don't necessarily know the domain name of the company that makes it. And so I'm just going to go Google it. And if I can see that as a threat actor, Yeah, with misspell results. a Google
1: name, you never know where you will get. And exactly. if the search engine, if you can get your result to show up in the search engine results, even better. Yeah. I guess it's funny how malvertising and drive, like in my day, I remember drive by downloads, which are odd if they can get you to the malicious link, it's automated, but it's always based on a vulnerability that you don't have patched. I I mean, ultimately this is just a different type of phishing or social engineering. And that I, you know, you don't need a vulnerability. You just need to emulate a site to change a few download links and, and you know, It's pretty trivial to if you get someone to go to the wrong domain, you can copy all the assets on the real domain, but just change the hyperlink for the download button to something Trojanized and bam, wham, bam, thank you, ma'am, you're done. (laughs) I wonder if, uh, like... No one does it anymore, and and nowadays the installer packages are supposed to check them, but if the installer package you download is Trojanized, too, you're screwed. But it harkens back to maybe we should start to do checksums again, you know. Of course, if someone gets you to the wrong version of the site, I'm sure they would change, hey, check out this checksum, make sure it's this right one for the malware you just delivered. (laughs) So I I guess the checksum could be changed, too.
0: And I feel like not changed,
1: being, it could be spoofed to the wrong one.
0: This is a good example of why just application allow listing is where ultimately everyone will probably end up once it becomes a little easier to manage. From it's just, just such a pain in the butt for this.
1: Uh, yeah, I, I like whitelisting, but when you have certain roles at a company like support that has to try kind of unusual programs that they may not need, but they're testing for a customer or something. Whitelisting would be lovely. It's just, you get so much pushback to, a, in a normal business environment. If you're like in a OT environment or, you know, manufacturing critical infrastructure networks, it's so nice that you can, it's so easy to do white listing from the applications being used on those networks to the traffic. Those networks should have, you know, such a standardized specific network. It's, it's pretty easy to whitelist. but I feel like the random office you know, uh, you should do it, <laughs> but it, it's, I think friction is the biggest reason why most people don't. Good news
0: is if you are a AD360 or EBDR customer, this is where hundred percent zero trust application service I comes in. At
1: station. Yeah. yeah. Yep. We're not going to, if we've not seen it before, we're at least going to do some checks on it before we tell you if it's good or bad for sure. Exactly. And those checks will go all the way up to a human. If none of the automated processes can find out both it's for sure good or it's for sure bad.
0: Exactly. Um, and I guess if you are a, a company with software products that you deliver, it's probably a good idea to keep an eye on typo squatting or just phishing related adjacent domains for your company and, uh, try and stay ahead of this stuff. Uh, so moving on the, uh, The last story for today is not about malware. And I, for once, am going to join Corey in thinking maybe the future might look a little bit brighter in some cases, and that it looks like we might be on the, on the pathway, not anywhere near, but on the pathway to potentially resolving or making better cybersecurity in a sector that has historically had many, many challenges.
1: something that kind of qualifies as an OT sector that I just mentioned a second ago, but a very specific
0: one. <laughs> is healthcare. Um, so this actually starts with an example of why we need this. Uh, where uh, just last week, uh, CISA sent out or CISA, CISA, sorry, that is the correct pronunciation. I've been corrected Cisa. by friends at CISA before. Sizzle, CISA, CISA, S- S- my nizza. <laughs> um, so they sent out an alert for a widely used DNA sequencing system. Uh, where there's two vulnerabilities, one of, which. by the way, that,
1: that, that, feels paradoxical to me that it's widely used and, and DNA sequences. Yes. <laughs> in, in the industry, I get it, but if you just set it outside of norms, yeah, a very widely used DNA sequencing system, mine's well, next to my DNA microwave. Sequencing? Yeah, exactly. <laughs>
0: yeah. Mine's a, uh, mine's homebrewed onto my Nintendo switch. Um, So the two vulnerabilities, one of which is a CBSS 10.0, as bad as it gets, uh, that could allow an attacker to uh, basically take any action on the underlying operating system without any authentication if they've got network access to it. Uh, The second one is just a privilege, uh, unnecessarily privileged issue. Basically, the application runs as local admin or system when it really doesn't need to. Uh, So the first vulnerability, it's because the... I guess backing up, applications, they tend to communicate with different pieces of themselves, either through like IPC sockets, the processor, or local network so- sockets, where they can listen on local host on a specific port, and one piece of the software can issue a command or listen to another piece of the software. To do that securely, you bind on local hosts, so 127001, so that other applications or people or systems with network access to your computer can't issue the same commands or read the same responses. So this vulnerability was they binded globally on 0.0.0.0, which means that basically the machine, this application is running on accepts commands from anywhere it's accessible from anywhere. So as long as you have network access to it, you can make the exact same commands within the application itself that like its own inner workings do. It's uh, not ideal. Um, so, the application, it affects products using Illumina Universal Copy Service. Uh, and Illumina actually, to their credit, published a blog post in early April uh, with mitigation instructions for, quote, the UCS vulnerability. And pausing there real quickly, that is a, an ambitious statement of saying this is the vulnerability, implying that there aren't other and will not be other ones. and. I actually want to hit on this for a second, like the guidance that they put out, it, it was good. It's like So they gave instructions for every single type of their products and like instructions, either like closing firewall ports or updating, uh, creating accounts in there or either updating yourself or contacting support to upgrade because apparently you can't do it on your own in some cases. But just the overall like feel of the guidance and how it was put out is very different from what I'm used to in more traditional software and software products. But like if we see a vulnerability, like ones that we disclose or other companies, you know, we give you guidance, we give you a CVE, we give you a high level description of what it is. Uh, more than just close local firewall ports is guidance, like actual instructions on how to do things. And this is par for the course in our industry for traditional software. So it's just, I don't know, It it's interesting seeing it very different. And I don't know what to country. chalk it up to, but I think we talk a lot about <clears throat>
1: One of the reasons IoT devices and this OT devices, like a, a, a medical device that's connected to networks and thus potentially the internet, is because these are hardware manufacturers that that have made something that maybe back in the day was a traditionally not even a connected computer like i don't know much about dna sequencing devices but there used to be mri machines that were just specific mri machines that might have had a computer for processing but may not have been connected to a network using windows so i mean some of it you might check chalk up to a, a company that's never been a software or computer company not really understanding or knowing the the 25 plus year history of researchers finding issues and eventually you know vendors and software manufacturers having a more standardized vulnerability disclosure process so i i guess i can see it uh, also i think they kind of sell these devices as leave them the freak alone <laughs> it's a standard device that's just supposed to do what it does and we don't want you going in and flicking i so i, I don't know if that's an excuse for them but i wonder if that's why i mean i think it's pretty so, normal for a traditional hardware manufacturer to kind of suck at realizing how you have to patch software and not understanding the industry practices that have been in normal computing software industries for a long time
0: and so part of that is i think because historically When you get something certified by the FDA, which the FDA is the certifying body for medical equipment, it's a pretty rigorous process. And you certify a specific software version for that application system, machine, whatever. Any updates whatsoever have to go through the certification process again. Now, I said, that's how it, it used to be. They've actually made it easier now for manufacturers to do incremental updates that have a less strict certification process. And... As we'll get to in the story, it seems like this behavior is actually going to have to change due to some new regulations that are coming down. So back in December of last year, December 29th, uh, US Congress uh, signed into law, the, or I guess the president signed into law, the Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2023, which is basically the congressional spending bill, which as is typical in United States government, a spending bill isn't just about spending. It includes a whole bunch of other random crap that gets tacked on along <laughs> the along the way too. And one of those little sections there uh, was the section titled Ensuring Cybersecurity of Medical Devices that amended the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, uh, the FDNC Act, by adding what's called Section 524B, as in Bravo. Uh, and this new act. Uh, went into effect on March 29th, exactly 90 days after the passing of the appropriations bill. So on March 30th, the FDA published their guidance, which they titled Cybersecurity and Medical Devices uh, Refused to Accept Policy for Cyber Devices and Related Systems Under Section 524B of the FD&C Act. A little bit to unpack in that title. So I am a five-minute expert on the FDA and their approval process right now. (laughs) Uh, so I'm going to do my best at this, but, uh, basically when they are certifying a product system, whatever they have the option to label it with a refuse to accept designation, uh, an RTA or whatever, which is basically, sorry, it's too deficient, not allowed in the medical space. It's their way of saying no. And so this is their guidance on when they're going to, or and how they're going to use that for this new rule or new regulations around cyber devices. Um, so backing up to the actual like provisions in Section 524B, first off, it creates this definition for a quote-unquote cyber device uh, as a device that A, includes software validated, installed, or authorized by the sponsor, so manufacturer in FDA lingo, uh, as a device or in a device. B, has the ability to connect to the internet, and C, Uh, contains any such technological characteristics validated, installed, or authorized by the sponsor that could be vulnerable to cybersecurity threats. So basically saying anything connected to the internet that could get hacked, it's a cyber device now. Uh, And then it says, uh, the sponsor must submit a plan to monitor, identify, and address as appropriate in a reasonable time, post-market cybersecurity vulnerabilities and exploits, including coordinated vulnerability disclosure and related procedures. So pausing there for a second, sounds like this alone will address or at least force everyone in the medical space, medical manufacturing space to start at least doing vulnerability disclosure once they start enforcing this. Another uh, nice if they item? actually
1: extended this to iot i know the fda can't do yeah. it but wouldn't it be great if a government extended this to all iot manufacturers
0: i think we're getting there um next item though so they also must design develop and maintain a process and procedures to provide a reasonable insurance that the device and related systems are quote cyber secure and make available post-market updates and patches to the device and related systems that basically, I'm not going to read the rest of it. Basically, you have to regularly patch known uh, vulnerabilities and then provide as soon as possible out of cycle patches for critical vulnerabilities uh, to make sure your device is cyber secure. Um, Remember when
1: cyber was a drinking game at DEF CON? I've given up now. Cyber is now the vernacular. So I guess we just have
0: to deal with it, cyber everything. And it makes sense that the suits over at the FDA have decided that these are now cyber devices as opposed to, I don't know, <laughs> IT systems. I don't know. I guess it'd be fair. Last two it items. makes sense. Yep. That's what S- normal people it's, it's, call it's normal, them. like cyber.
1: It's just weird.
0: Yep. <laughs> uh, so they also need to provide the FDA a software bill of materials, including all commercial, open source, and off-the-shelf software components.
1: Everyone's and talking then, about
0: SBOMs lately. Look at that. Yeah. S-bombs all finally, the rage in
1: 2023. Get on with the trend. Hey, ooh, Where your s open. They
0: may need to uh, comply with other regulatory requirements as they come through. So that's the like the, the law now that is technically in effect as of March 29th. So the publication that the FDA put out on the 30th is guidance. So guidance is, it's not like a binding regu- regulatory action. They're not held to it. But it's them trying to say like, Kind of the direction they're going and what you should and shouldn't expect from them. And so the guidance says is for any, uh, they call it pre-market submissions, like new device uh, submitted uh, for a cyber device before October 1st of this year, the FDA does not intend to issue a refuse to accept decision based solely off of information gathered during this process. Instead, they're going to work with the the manufacturers uh, as a part of the submission process to try and resolve issues. But the starting October first, vendors get up to speed is what they're saying for a yes. period of time. Starting October first, though, uh, they believe that manufacturers will have had sufficient time to prepare pre-market submissions uh, for cyber devices, which means they may start issuing uh, refuse to accept designation designations for new devices if they don't conform to these new regulations. So the I won't say the end is in sight, but the start of the journey is in sight to securing medical devices and forcing it through regulations from a, a manufacturing and software development perspective. And I know like there's a large contingent of folks and myself to some degree as well that aren't, you know, you don't like regulating something into the ground. But areas like this where the the free market has failed to keep manufacturers accountable to developing secure devices and even just releasing patches or patchable devices. This is a, I think a good example of where regulation. That's can where I consumers. stand.
1: I don't think anyone loves regulation. Like the, the idea is if society does the right thing, we're not going to like have to force you, why not just do the right thing on your own? But, uh, when industry repeatedly shows that they are not willing to do the right thing, and by the way, this not doing, this isn't the right thing. Cause you put your customers, patients, everybody at risk then, you know, no one wants to get to the regulation. It's just going to add more steps, but maybe if you did the right thing in the first place, we wouldn't have to get there. So more of the story, do the right thing. If you don't like regulation. Exactly.
0: And I get it. It's, it's tough. Don't dump toxic waste
1: are... in the environment. <laughs> maybe you won't be regulated. <laughs> Correct. Don't dump yeah. security, vulnerability, toxic waste throughout, uh, all the software we use, maybe you won't be regulated. B
0: minus analogy, but I see where you're going with that. Um, but I like, I mean, you can kind of understand, especially from outside the medical space and like just IOT in general, where typical consumer just wants something that works and something that's cheap, cheap but in, easy, a, in the medical the space, like this is literally like, could be the, literally be the life, definition between life and death. Yeah. Like not even exaggerating on that one. Maybe not a DNA DNA sequencing
1: machine, but like a drug infusion machine. It's been proven many times that it literally could be life or death if it messes up.
0: Yep. So this is the the start. We'll see uh, starting October 1st how strictly they enforce it. But it does at least seem to be the destination that in in the United States, at least, that we're going to be going with these types of devices. Now, obviously, every country is different. Uh, I I haven't done any research. I almost imagine...
1: I, I, yeah, I was going to say, I, I have not done the, no research, so I don't know, but I almost assumed that European union might even be ahead, but I really don't know when way or another, what they do as far as, you know, uh, validating and confirming medical devices can be used in their market we'll have to circle back on that on a, uh,
0: a future episode, I think,
1: or shoot. If there's any well, listeners out there, you, you'll hear our hashtags at the end of the show. Let us know. Maybe we'll have your no comments on
0: there, Corey. We're just talking. Oh, the we're void. just talking
1: to ourselves for fun, the ether. Yeah. No, this is like literally I like just ether. convinced
0: them, convinced marketing to uh, help us produce this, so I could sit here and make fun of you for an hour, once a day. That every makes
1: week. sense. That explains a lot, actually. It's are we at least
0: broadcasting
1: it into space, so one day I have hope a alien might hear it. My Probably plan not. is to
0: get it engraved on a gold disc and shoot it off in one of Elon's rockets to Mars at some point.
1: Along with his Tesla Model Z, or whatever he I has. Think that's next on its year. way to
0: the sun, right?
1: Oh, uh, I, do- I, I was trying to make up a model. I don't know <laughs> all of the models.
0: Uh, yeah, I don't know. What is Elon Musk's car on the way to the sun? I don't remember, but... On this space, if you're going to the hospital sometime soon, maybe you won't die because of a cyber attack. Hooray. That'd
1: be nice. Now, if they could just take care of ransomware.
0: That's uh, too tall of an order, unfortunately. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. As always, if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. If you have any questions on today's topics or suggestions for future episode topics, you can still currently reach out to us on Twitter. I'm at XORRO underscore, Corey's at SECADEPT, and both of us are at hashtag, please get us off of this platform. Thanks again for listening, and you will hear from us next week.
1: I tried to join Mastodon, but then we recreated it with DNA and started eating it, and now it doesn't exist. (laughs) (laughs) I'm <laughs> sorry. <laughs>